How about now? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. So let's pray for the folks in Las Vegas. This is a terrible tragedy, and God has a reason why he allowed it, but we're, we need to pray for them. So let's, let's bow together. Heavenly Father, as life goes on and the world turns and history moves forward, there are a lot of things that until we get to glory, we won't understand. The Bible says, now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. And there are these mysteries in life, why you allow suffering and tragedy. But we know, Father, that in the grand picture, this did not um, take you by surprise and you permitted it. And we pray for all those who've experienced this great tragedy, that you will comfort them. Father, people can get bitter or they can get better. And so we ask that the Christian community would surround those who have been so deeply hurt and point them to Christ. And may we find comfort in knowing that you're in control and all things can work together for good to those who love God. So, Father, for those who have suffered from hurricanes and earthquakes and even in our midst, those who are suffering today, would you extend your comfort and grace? And as we get to know God better, may our love for you grow, may our obedience to you grow, may our faith in you grow, and may we truly become more like you. Thank you that you have promised to bless your word, and we see the gospel reaching and touching people, even in our community. And so I pray that you will continue to use our church family, our flock, the body of Christ here, to extend the gospel to one another, to our loved ones and friends, and may many more people continue to come to know Christ. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you. We have Bibles that we'll be glad to give out if you need a Bible. We're doing a series right now called Rooted in the Faith and really trying to figure out what is it that Christians believe so that we have some roots, so that we're not moved away from our Christianity so easily. So the first thing I want to talk about is we mentioned that when you're learning about God, that usually you talk about his existence. And we said that you can know that God exists internally and externally. The Bible says that. His attributes, what's he like? His names, which we're not going to really study. And then his triunity. So last week we did his existence and attributes. Today we're going to do a little more of his attributes and then the triunity. But we, we want to move quickly. You can listen to last week's sermon if you weren't here. But we said that, what is God like? Well, every attribute that he possesses, we said you could call that a perfection. And we said some of those attributes are incomprehensible. God is, is unable to be fully understood. His greatness is unsearchable. But he does want us to know him, and you can truly know him personally. And when you become a Christian, you continue to get to know him. You can know him better and better and better. Our whole life, we're getting to know God. Colossians 1.10 tells us to pray that we will increase in the knowledge of God, that you'll love him more, trust him more, teach him to others, and talk about him, and worship him and glorify him. So we said that, we share some of God's attributes, and some of them we don't. And we talked about the ones we don't share, like his independence and his immutability, that he doesn't change. We left off last week talking about this all-encompassing attribute of his holiness, that he's unique. And day and night, the angels are constantly saying, holy, holy. Now, we, we, we did mention this, but I want to come back to that. His holiness involves his uniqueness, but it has moral implications. Like, you don't want to mess with God. 
The Bible says he is light and there's no darkness in him at all. He hates evil. He hates sin. He notices all of it. And he's angry with it. And if that's all we knew about God, we, we ought to be very, very frightened of him. But the Bible also mentions other attributes of God. And it's important to try to keep these in balance. So we want to talk about not just this, this attribute of his holiness, but then as we think about some of his attributes, some of them have to do with his mind, some with his will, some with his heart. So let's talk about a couple things in regards to the way God thinks in his mind. The first one is his knowledge. Now, we know from the Bible that God knows everything. We call that his omniscience. Not only everything that's actually going on, but everything that's possible. So when people go, what if, what if, what if? God knows everything actual and possible. But, but as on a more personal level, think about how well he knows you. The Bible says... There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now think about that phrase. Who's God? Him with whom we have to do. You're going to meet him one day. This reminds me of a, a story I read of a little frog one time who, who went to a fortune teller. Bad idea. But the fortune teller said, I see a beautiful blonde in your near future, and she's going to want to know all about you. And the frog's like, wow, that's cool. He says, um, you're going to be in her biology class. Oh, right? But God, God, God says, look, you're laid open and bare before my eyes. I know your thoughts. I know your motives. I know all about you. Now, that depends on where you are with God. You might like that or not like that. If you're moving towards his mercy and falling down and, and praying to be forgiven, that's a good thing. But not only does he know all things that are actual and possible, but the Bible also speaks of his wisdom. And those two are not the same. We all know people who know a lot, but they don't seem to have a whole lot of wisdom. There's this skillful application of knowledge. So the Bible calls God the only wise God. And, and everything he does, he does in wisdom. Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And so God is orchestrating everything that happens on the earth in a very wise way to accomplish his purposes in the best ways with the best means to achieve what he wants to do. Now, that's really interesting to think about, that God is full of knowledge and wisdom. But is he just this disconnected robot? Well, no, he also has attributes of his heart. He has affections and emotions. And so this is really cool to think about. I'd be frightened if he, if he wasn't like this as well. But he's good. The Bible says the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. Now think about that. We, we, if you remember in um, Forrest Gump, in his famous movie when, um, well, he had a lot of them, but when he taught us that life is like a box of chocolates, do you remember his buddy who was a ship captain who got up on the mast of the ship and he's cursing God, right? And every once in a while, God will do something severe and somebody will be struck down by God. And we're shocked by that. Wow. We shouldn't be shocked when God strikes people down. What should shock us is how rarely he does that. Jesus said he sends his rain on the righteous and unrighteous. He's good to all. God doesn't go, oh, I don't bless unbelieving farmers. He's very compassionate. But one of his attributes that's overwhelmingly personal and such a blessing to us is the Bible tells us God is love. 
He's not just loving. By his very nature, he is love. Emanating out of his very eternal being is this continual attribute, this perfect attribute of affection. But we have to understand, love is not just this grandfather who says, I know you're evil, I know you've done bad things, but children, just come anyway. Because he's also holy and he's just. But one of the things the Bible does is it builds up the holiness of God to show us how much we deserve his wrath. And then it introduces us to God's love. So a really interesting passage is Ephesians chapter 2. I don't think we have that here, but in Ephesians 2, it says this. It says, even though we were by nature children deserving God's wrath, because God is rich in mercy and because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, he made us alive. By grace, we have been saved. And so there's this, this overflowing wellspring of love that God expresses to his creatures through Christ. So God, because of his mercy, he knows that we deserve hell, but he sends his son to die on the cross so that it's possible to not get what we deserve. Now those who spurn his mercy are going to get what they deserve. If you don't come to Christ, you're going to get what you deserve, which is hell. But that mercy is also rooted in his unconditional, overflowing capacity to freely give to undeserving creatures. So he not only doesn't give us what we deserve, but we get what we don't deserve. So because of his mercy and his love for us, he extends grace. So the difference might be a judge could show mercy and say, all right, I'll pardon you, but never let me see you in my court again. But grace says, I'll not only pardon you, I'll adopt you, I'll take care of you, you'll be my eternal child. And so God's grace is this overwhelming sense that it saved a wretch like me. Oh, God, thank you for your grace. And then his long-suffering involves the means by which he postpones punishing. In other words, because he's a loving God, he extends great patience to his rebellious creatures. Most of the people down here on this planet are disconnected from God and in rebellion. You might not like to hear that, but that's what the Bible says. And God has every right to smite the whole world. He could, he could throw everybody into hell. But he's very patient. The Bible says he's not willing for any to perish. He wants people to come to repentance and faith in Christ so they can be saved. But here's the thing to always remember. If you're playing with God and you're doing things that you know are wrong, don't ever confuse his patience with his absence. Little kids, you know, we teach them, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, and they, and, and they begin to form a sense of right and wrong. And the first time that we do something wrong, sometimes it can be very disconcerting. We're like, oh no, what's going to happen? But then if you don't get caught or nothing happens, you can make a really bad decision, and that is, wait, God didn't get me. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because God doesn't execute his sentence immediately, the heart of people is bent on doing evil because they think, hey, yeah, I know I'm having an affair. I know I shouldn't do this, but hey, nothing happened. So, so God is not withholding punishment for our sin because he, he's just cool with it. 
He's patient. The Bible says his kindness is calling us to repentance. So, so we, we need to be warned. Don't, don't play with God. Don't think, hey, nothing happens when you do what's wrong. But I also need to be reminded that in spite of the mess that I am, God loves me just as I am. He gave his son to die for me. Now, he loves me too much to leave me that way, but he receives me as a sinner. And if you've never come as just a broken sinner who knows that you need the Lord, come to Jesus today. He will save you by his grace, and he will eternally fix his love on you, and you'll never be separated from that love. So with that in mind, this is important when I think about the next attribute, and that is that God is sovereign. You see, this is one of the great apologetic questions. If God is so strong, why doesn't he stop evil? And if God is loving, maybe he's not strong enough to stop evil because why would he let all this bad stuff go on? So a lot of people, I don't believe in God because of all the bad things that happen. And so what we have to understand is God is holy, God is love, but he's, but he's sovereign. So he's in control of everything. Not a bird falls to the ground, Jesus said, that he doesn't know about it. There's no accidents. When the ping pong ball hits the edge of the table, my buddy says, ah, oh, good sovereignty instead of good luck. You're like, okay, you're, you're going over the top. But, but, but think about this. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So God is achieving his sovereign, wise, and loving purposes in your life. But he didn't correspond with you and say, hey, how do, you, how do you feel about this? You think I should do this? And frankly, he doesn't always tell us why he does things. And this is why this doctrine is so important to believe and to embrace. Because we all experience hurt. You've had bad things happen. If you haven't had bad things happen, it's going to happen. Matter of fact, parents, you can't protect your children completely from suffering. So prepare them. Teach them. Yeah, at some point, hurt people hurt people. Things are going to happen. Things bad come into our lives. And then we have a choice to make. If I believe God is loving, if I believe he's wise, if I believe he's good, then I don't have to get bitter. I can, I can get better. I can believe God that when he says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those whom I've called according to my purpose. So from a human standpoint, don't try to figure out why was I abused or why did I get cancer or why did I lose my mother or why did my parents get divorced or whatever tragedy you've been through. God's not going to give you the individual reasons but he gives you the broad reason. I'm going to work it together for good. And so, by way of application, Joseph becomes a great example of this. When Joseph, if you've never read the story of Joseph, Genesis 38 to 50, read it. He had all kinds of terrible things happen to him. His brothers mistreated him horribly, sold him into slavery. He went to prison for a crime he never committed. He was left in prison for years because his loser friend didn't help him when he could have. But at the end of, of the book of Genesis, when his brothers find out that he's second in command in Egypt now, and they're afraid he's going to punish them for how badly they treated him, he goes, look, I'm not God. But then he said something profound. He said, you meant what you did to me. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So he didn't forgive his brothers. That's between them and God. They have to repent. But what he said is, I recognize that even when bad things happen, 
God has a good purpose behind it. And he's not always going to tell us exactly what it is. He wants us to trust him. It's kind of like you look up in the sky, you go, wow, look how beautiful the sky is. But the sky is, is, is the underside of what God's doing up in heaven, like, like a needle point. The back of a needle point can be pretty ugly, but the Bible says God's making everything beautiful in his time. So if you can't see his hand right now in your life, you can trust his heart and say, God is in control, he's sovereign. Sometimes our mess is because of what we did, but even if it's not, God's good, he's loving, he has a purpose in my suffering, he hasn't forgotten me, and I can trust and write songs like, it is well with my soul. So that's just kind of an overview of his attributes, and we haven't covered a lot of them, but I want us to move now to, to the Trinity or the triunity of God. Why do Christians believe that God exists in one God and three persons? I want to start by saying this, that when you think about the Old Testament, it probably wouldn't be safe to say the Old Testament clearly teaches the Trinity. I think it was Burkhoff who, who said something about the Trinity that I thought was, was a good way to illustrate it. So if you're reading the Old Testament, someone might ask, is the Trinity clearly taught that? And, and he says this, the Old Testament could be likened to a chamber that's richly furnished but dimly lighted. As you continue to read the Old Testament, it brings more and more light into it, and it brings into clear view much was not perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but here and there it almost comes into view. So as you're reading the Old Testament, if you have a Jewish friend, he goes, I think there's only one God. We go, we do too. But there are some things that happen in the Old Testament that begin to go, you won't understand this just in the Old Testament, but as we read the New Testament, we go back and say, okay. So for example, there are these plurals in the Old Testament where God refers to himself as us. Now that doesn't prove the Trinity, but Genesis chapter 1, when God is doing creation, he says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Now it's not as though Jewish people aren't aware of this verse. And so they would say, well, he's talking to angels. He looks at the angels, he says, let us make man in our image. That's not impossible, but I think two problems with that are, number one, angels don't have the power to create, and number two, even though your mother called some of you angel, you're not made in the image of angels. So, I don't think he was talking to angels, and this verse doesn't prove the Trinity, but the, these plurals, even the word for God Elohim, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, Elohim, does have a plural aspect to it. It can be translated and is translated in the Psalms, gods. So his name has a plurality. The word for his face is in plural, panim, faces. And there's this reference to us. Does that prove the Trinity? No. But as you're reading, the light begins to, 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 to come out a little bit more. You come to later time in the Old Testament, like Isaiah. Isaiah says, come near to me, listen to this. From the first time I have not spoken in secret, from the time it took place I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Wait, who's talking here? God. But God just said, God sent me. And God just said, his spirit sent me. Does that make sense? So, so you look at that and you go, okay, 
I don't think anybody should read that and go, oh, that proves the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why are we debating this? But, but rather just go, okay, there are some things in the Old Testament. And Jesus referred to these. He says, how can the Lord say to my Lord, sit at my right hand, in Psalm 110. So there are these implications in the Old Testament that God is one God, but he exists in more than one being or more than one person. But as you come into the New Testament, it's like Jesus turns the light on and says, look, the New Testament will clearly reveal to us fuller revelation about the Trinity, especially the night before he died when he talked about the coming of the Spirit and so forth. So here's what's important. It's not as simple as to just pull one verse out and say, well, here's where it says the Trinity. It never says that. The word Trinity is not even used in the Old Testament. But what I want you to think about is, as a Christian, you should be able to explain why you believe in the Trinity more than because, well, that's what Christians believe, or that's what my pastor says. Because I can assure you this, if a Jehovah's Witness came to your door, they do not believe in the Trinity. And many of you would not be able to converse with them. You would have to continue to do what you're doing, hide under the furniture until they go away. As a Christian, you don't need to be embarrassed or to feel that you can't defend the Trinity. You just need to learn how to do that. So what I suggest is that you learn how to get it. G-E-T. I just um, read these three phrases in Grudem's book, and I thought, we could put them together into a word, get. And so why do you believe in the Trinity? Well, because the Bible teaches God exists in three persons. The Bible teaches each person is God, and there's only one God. Now, that's the easy part. You could probably remember that, G-E-T. God exists, three persons. Each person's God. There's only one God. Now comes the work. So that's why I told you you should have a notebook. Everything I say here is copyright. Copy it right down, because I want you to remember it. Just, just learn these things. This is, not, this is not side stuff. This is what Christians believe. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. Try to fully understand it, you lose your mind. But the Bible's clear. If you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. This is not like, oh, some Christians think this. This is the heart and soul of our Christian faith. And we can explain that from the Bible. And I would certainly hope that all of us who are learning things in here, there's a whole lot of people out there who are not ready to come in here yet, but would sit down at your dining room table and talk about this. And as a parent, or as a grandparent, when my granddaughter's going, well, if Jesus is down in the water, who's talking up there? I thought he was God. You and I need to be able to go, all right, let me try to think through why I believe this and how it affects my prayers, my worship, my relationships, my salvation. So what we're going to do is just develop these three. The first one's pretty easy to, to, to support from the Bible. You just have to find any passage that mentions all three of them at the same time. That doesn't prove the Trinity. It just shows that there's three distinct persons. So in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice one name, not three names. But anytime you're reading in the Bible where all three members are mentioned, even at the baptism, you've got Jesus in the water, the Father is speaking, and the Spirit is, is, is descending, at least I can say, all right, there's these three persons that are distinct, okay? And the last one, there's only one God. That can be developed from both the Old and New Testaments. We call this monotheism. Now, ironically, most of the world does not believe in monotheism. 
there are far more polytheists and people who hold all kinds of strange beliefs. This week, my wife and I watched Wonder Woman. It was relatively clean. But I got mad in the beginning. Now, some of you are like, dial it back, that's dumb. But this whole Greek mythology stuff, right? I know most of us are like, oh, that's silly. But, but, but when you think about how the world, we saw in Romans 1, they make up their own speculations. There's Zeus and all these other gods. That's what a lot of people believe. All over the world, there's people worshiping all kinds of stuff. The Bible says the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. There's no other God. There's only one true God. Okay? But Jews believe that. Muslims believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. But they're not Christians. And I believe the Bible teaches they're not going to heaven if they don't repent and confess Jesus as Lord. And don't hate on me for being, you know, so narrow. I didn't say it. Jesus did. So let's go, all right. If the Bible teaches there's only one God, the Bible teaches that God exists in three distinct persons, the real meat and potatoes here is proving that each person is God. Can I take my Bible and say, okay, look, it says right here, the Father is God. Let me show you some verses over here that say Jesus is God. And let me show you some verses over here that show that the Spirit is God. And then we could put them together into a, a definition. You know, what do you mean by the Trinity? Well, we're, we're going to come to that. So, how do I prove that each member of the Trinity is God? Well, the first one's pretty easy. You will rarely find anybody who believes the Bible who would say, I don't believe the Father is God. Jesus, when he taught the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Nobody's like, does he mean God by that? Okay, so that shouldn't be a problem to go, the Bible speaks of one God who is our Father. The place where most of the tension is, is, is Jesus God? Okay, now this is incredibly important. This is, this, is, this is powerfully important. My, I've, you've heard me tell this story many times. My wife's aunt, I asked her, do you think you'll go to heaven? She goes, yeah, but not because I deserve it, but because Jesus died for my sins. So I'm trusting in his grace by faith. I said, before I could say anything, she said, but I don't believe Jesus is God. She goes, I, I study with Jehovah's Witness. I don't believe Jesus is God. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's okay, just as long as you believe Jesus died for your sins. No, it's not okay. The Bible says you must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and then you'll be saved. So to renounce or to deny the deity of Christ means you're not a Christian. In John chapter 20, John, after writing his book, he says... In verse 30, these things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the Gospel of John, Son of God is divine. It says in the Gospel of John, we're going to kill you because you called yourself the Son of God. You say you're equal with God. So John says, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that you'll have life. Now, I understand that many people who come to Christ haven't thought this through you know, you weren't like, oh, I worship you, Jesus, Lord of all. But if a person continues to deny the deity of Christ, they're not a Christian. Because Satan is clever. He's always trying to attack the Christian faith. The Bible says many will fall away from the faith 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He started before the New Testament was even finished. They were already attacking the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, only from the other side in the first century. Because Greeks believed that matter was evil and that the human body was therefore evil and the goal was to escape this material body, they began to mingle that with their Christianity and deny the humanity of Christ. And so some of these false teachers began to say, Jesus just seemed to be human. He couldn't have been a real man because that would have made him evil because he would have had an evil body. Now you might say, all right, well, big deal. As long as you believe he's God, it doesn't matter if you believe he's a man. The apostle John said in 1 John 4, 1, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits, test the teaching. He said, anyone that denies that Jesus Messiah has come in the flesh is not from God. Off the team, right? So, New Testament Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, Biblical Christianity says Jesus is not only fully man, but he's fully God. Now, this is where some of you would get a beating if you went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Jehovah's Witness right now because they would say, hey, John 3.16 says, Jesus is God's only begotten son. Begotten means created. God created Jesus. He's not equal with God. Jesus, when he was on earth, he said, my father is greater than all. He's not equal with God. Jesus is not God. And they're very clever. If you say, well, I believe Jesus created all things. They say, we do too. Well, I believe Jesus died for our sins. We do too. But here's where you can spot him a mile away. Just ask him, do you worship Jesus? No. You only worship Jehovah. And so I actually say, hey, I'm a Jehovah's Witness too. Oh, you are? Yeah. I worship Jehovah Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is divine. Jesus is eternal, Lord of all. And so how would I prove that from the Bible? Now, we could spend far more time. I'm just going to give you a quick overview, but at least have a verse or two that you can start with. First of all, by implication, if you read the Gospels, you see things that Jesus didn't said that imply his deity. Jesus would say to a person, your sins are forgiven, right? And it's clear in the Bible, only God can forgive sins. So one time Jesus made that statement and people flipped out. The religious leaders say, why does he speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus is like, no, I, I get this. Yeah, I didn't stutter. When I said your sins are forgiven, I know that only God can forgive sins. And I want you to know that I'm God. I want you to know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he healed the man. And so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, he, he healed him. So he forgave sins. And by the way, as a side note, some of you may be just getting started with the Bible and you may have been attending a church where someone told you to say this or that and you're forgiven. Don't ever trust a man. The only one that can forgive your sins is Jesus Christ. He's the one mediator. And so make sure, if you're not sure, that you learn from the Bible how to come to Christ and have all your sins forgiven by the Lord. Because just because somebody told you your sins are forgiven. I had a, a relative tell me this summer that one of our other relatives went to their spiritual leader. He said, oh, you're going to go into heaven on a toboggan with potato chips. And I'm thinking, this guy's lost. He's not going into heaven unless he comes to Christ. So... 
Jesus is Lord and he forgives sins. But there are tons of verses that also teach clearly that he's God. Now, for the sake of time, I just have one here. I'm going to mention a couple others. But just as an example, the triune God, before they planned this earth, they made a plan that Christ would come down here to die for us. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But he didn't get a drawing of straws where Jesus goes, dang, why do I have to go down there and die? Why don't you go, Holy Spirit? Why don't you go, Father? So the Bible says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equal with God. He's equal. When, when Jesus confronted doubting Thomas and he said, reach here your, your, your hand and touch my side. John 20, 28, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. See, Jesus is God. He's not just a man. In Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father in verse 8 says to his son, God says to Jesus, he doesn't say, come here, sonny boy, let me give you a noogie, small fry. God the Father says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there are numerous passages that teach that Jesus is God, that he's eternal, that there was never a time that he didn't exist. So Jehovah's Witnesses would say, look, he can't be God because he's his only begotten son. So therefore, God created Jesus. He can't be God because the Bible says he's the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn doesn't have to mean first in time. It can mean first in rank. But there are these clear statements of his deity. So as a result of that, Jesus Christ is equal and eternal. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. The Son of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are eternal. There wasn't a time where God said, you know, being one's kind of boring. Let me morph into three. Or let me create a son. Hey, you mind if I call you son? Not if I can call you dad. No, he was always the father. Jesus has always been the eternal son of God. And the spirit of God has always been the eternal third person of the triune God. So, knowing that the father is God, knowing that Jesus is God, and then learning that the Spirit is God, I go, okay, wait, so if there's one God, he exists in three equal eternal persons. So let's move now to this third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. How would I prove he is God? Even Christians have such a vague understanding of, well, we'll sometimes speak of the Holy Spirit as an it. Man, the Holy Spirit, it was working the other night. Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus referred to he when he comes. So, interestingly, this is not something that most Jehovah's Witnesses study, the, the, the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. They believe, along with others, that the Holy Spirit is just a reference to God's power, that the Holy Spirit's just like an entity. It's not, it's not a person. It's just some thing, right? That it's just another way to speak of God's power. And I go, well, wait a minute. The Bible talks about the Spirit having emotions. When we sin, Ephesians 4.29 says... Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Things don't have emotions. The, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit has a mind. In Romans 8, the Bible says the Holy Spirit prays for us and God knows what is the mind of the Spirit. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit has a will. He makes decisions. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, you and I have spiritual gifts which God has given by the Holy Spirit according to his will. The Holy Spirit has chosen which gifts to give you. And perhaps if I only had one verse, I would use Acts chapter 5, where, where Peter confronts Ananias for a very deceitful lie, and he says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? See that phrase? You lied to the Holy Spirit. Down at the end of the verse, you have not lied to men, but to God. So don't think of the Holy Spirit as just a, a force be with you. He's a person. There's a mystery to it because he's a spirit. But, but he and the Father and the Son have existed eternally together. And so Christians have attempted then to put together some sort of a statement that says, this is what I believe. And so I'm going to put one up there. It's not the only definition of the Trinity, but it's a good starting point. There's only one true God. We're monotheists. But this one true God exists in three equal and eternal persons. Now, if I just put that statement down, and somebody says, well, how can you prove that? That's, then I would say, all right, let's go through these three statements. God exists in three persons. Each person's God. There's only one God. You could do that. Okay? You might have to practice. You might have to listen to this message again or take some notes, but this isn't something that only a rocket scientist could do, right? This is just Christianity, right? So, when we speak of these three eternal persons who have the same nature, one thing that I think is really helpful is to think about their different roles, okay? What is it that each of them does? And sometimes it can be a little bit tricky. So, for example, if you say, who raised Jesus from the dead? You're like, well, that's simple. I know that one. The Bible says the Father raised him from the dead. It says that right in Galatians 1. And I go, yeah. But in John 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus did. But then in Romans chapter 1, it says, he was declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead, according to the Holy Spirit. You're like, wait. So sometimes as you think about the members of the Trinity, who created us? God did. But then in the New Testament, it often speaks of Christ as the mediating agent. All things came into being through him. But I have found this to be most helpful. As you think about your salvation in the broadest sense, if you're a Christian, Think of the roles of each member of the Trinity in your salvation. Think of the Father as the one who planned it. Because frequently the Bible will speak of God the Father as the, as the one who called us. So Romans, or here's a great verse, Ephesians 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing. And then it says this, just as he chose us in Christ. So God the Father planned our salvation. He planned to bring you to Christ if you're a Christian. Don't assume he planned for everybody to be saved. But if you're saved, it's because God the Father planned for your salvation. And somehow in this eternal council, we don't know all of what took place, but, but Paul will, will practically speak of this. He says, Timothy, God called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace granted us in Christ Jesus before eternity, before the world began. God was planning for us to be here today. 
and for those of us who know him to spend eternity with him. But the Son, Jesus Christ, is the one who came down from heaven and purchased our salvation. So the Bible doesn't say God the Father died on the cross. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit died on the cross. But Jesus, the second person, the Son of God, he's the one that took on humanity. He's the Lamb of God who died and rose again. He's the one who has been exalted as Lord of all and sits at the right hand of God. He's the one to whom all of the judgments of all mankind have been entrusted so that one day the Bible says we will all bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, the judge of all the living and the dead. And this is why we worship Jesus. We glory in the cross. We give him praise. I've heard people say, what's all the big deal about Jesus? Why do you guys get so excited about Jesus? Because of the cross. Because of what he did to pay for our salvation. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given them the name above all names. And so we glory in Christ. We celebrate Christ. We don't neglect the Father. We don't ignore the Holy Spirit. But we praise the Lamb who purchased our salvation. But what about the Holy Spirit? The cross of Christ would be nothing more than the hymn on a hill far away were it not for the Holy Spirit. Because though Christ died to purchase salvation for his own, unless the Holy Spirit applies it to your life, it's meaningless. It has no value in two ways. Number one, you won't care about it. And this is why the Bible says to those who are perishing, the cross of Christ is foolishness. If when you hear about the cross of Jesus, you're like, yeah, whatever. I pity your soul. And pray that God will open your eyes and understand that when Christ went to that cross, Jesus paid it all for you. And he died to forgive you and to be your Lord so you'd no longer live for yourself but for him. But the only reason we understand that is because we have received the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things freely given to us. Thank you, God, for giving us your Spirit. Thank you that the Spirit opened my eyes and he was poured out into my life and he enlightened me so that I get it. And any interest you have in the Bible, any, any progress you make in the gospel, it's because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. Any, any conformity to the image of Christ, any evidence of a change in your life, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working as I yield to this divine third person of the triune God. Any sense of the love of God in my heart, it's because the Holy Spirit sheds abroad God's love in my heart. And pray for that. Pray that as Paul prayed, oh God, may, your, may you pour out the power of your spirit so that I might know the love of Christ. Now, having said that, there are some erroneous views of the Trinity that I'll briefly touch on. One of them is called modalism. That's a belief that God can just change his clothes and be in a different outfit, but not at the same time. So he's Clark Kent. He can go into the booth and come out Jesus one day, change his clothes and put on his father outfit, but he's not all three at once. And some have accused, there's a famous preacher named T.D. Jakes of being a modalist. I, I, I haven't read enough about that, so I'm not throwing him under the bus, but be careful, just listen. Is he, is he teaching all three members? Or is he just focusing on one at a time, not existing at once? And then Arianism, this is interesting because Jehovah's Witnesses, they didn't come up with something new. 
read the history of Jehovah's Witnesses. They started in the early 1900s, the Watchtower Society. All they have done is resurrected a teaching called Arianism that was in the 300s when Arius was, was proposing that Jesus isn't God because he's his begotten son. And the church expelled him as a heretic. So I'll say to Jehovah's Witness, hey, read about the history of Arianism. You'll be fascinated to see the connections and the similarities between Arianism and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then tritheism. Jewish people say, ah, you guys believe in three gods. No, we don't. We believe in one God, but he exists in three persons. Well, I don't understand that. Neither do I. Try to understand it, you lose your soul. I mean, try to understand it, you lose your mind. But deny it, you lose your soul. I think the Bible clearly teaches that. So, I think analogies probably have mixed. They always lack something. I'm not going to take time, but people use a man, a father, a pastor, a mayor. That's an illustration. We'll skip that for time's sake. But let me talk about some brief applications. Number one, in prayer. Okay? As you pray, some of you only pray to the Father. Some of you only pray to Jesus. Some of you pray to the Holy Spirit. Pray with your mind and think. Okay? If you pray to the Father, Jesus said, ask in my name. So, so I'm consciously going, Father God, thank you that I have access to you because of Christ. Because the Lamb shed his blood, I can come into your presence. Oh, you're my Abba, Father. I worship you through your Son. But you can also, at times, pray directly to Christ. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned, he didn't say, Dear Heavenly Father, through Jesus, receive my spirit. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But what about the Holy Spirit? I would suggest that you don't pray directly to the Holy Spirit. You're like, what? The reason I say that is there are no examples of that in the Bible. I, I wouldn't tell you that it's wrong. I would just say there's no examples. If ever Paul had an opportunity to do that in Ephesians 3, he wanted the Holy Spirit to strengthen people. So he said in Ephesians 3, I ask the Father to strengthen you with power through his spirit. So it's not downplaying the spirit, but I would just say, pray to the Lord Jesus or pray to the Father in Jesus' name. You can worship all three. We can sing, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And we can be conscious and, and be sensitive to the leading of the spirit. And when you worship and you sing, Paul says, worship with your mind also. Like think about what am I singing? We just sang a song, and we just wrotely sing about our salvation from God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So enrich your worship. I praise you, O God. I praise you, Father who sits on the throne, Lamb that was slain. Think of the richness of the Spirit of God's presence. In the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the seven spirits of God. It's not like there's a, a nine-inity instead of a trinity. It's just this rich imagery as I worship God. And then lastly, in your relationships. Real quick, I just want you to think about this. Jesus, the Father, and the Son get along splendidly. They really like each other. They've never had any relational conflicts. They have this perfect love for one another, this deference, this communication that has existed forever, and it's awesome. And those three have perfect, unique fellowship. But when Jesus came to earth, he said, Father, I pray that they might be one as we are one. He prayed that in our relationships that we would taste a little bit of the triune relationship that God has, and you're going, like my marriage? <laughs> Seriously? Well, 
Could you believe God that Jesus prayed for you to have unity in your marriage? You're like, yeah, well, you don't know my spouse. I don't need to. I know Jesus, and I know that he prayed, Father, I pray that they might be one. And I would suggest that if there is far from any oneness in your marriage, rather than worry about their fault, what about your part in that? How are you relating to your spouse as the father relates to the son, as the son speaks to the spirit? Pray for greater unity, not only in your marriage, but in the church. Jesus prayed that we would have this love for one another, this, this acceptance of one another. We're so different. We're all a mess. We're in healing. But Jesus prayed for this rich unity in our relationship. So I trust that you'll grow stronger in your, your, your faith in the living God, this triune God, and that you'll go out and share the good news that God so loved the world, he gave his only son. If you have any questions, you want to learn how to become a Christian, I'll be here afterward. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for your word and its power. And we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for our salvation. We will eternally be ever grateful. Help us to live out our faith in the true and living God. And may we proclaim the excellencies of the gospel of Christ. May many more people come to faith, and may all of us grow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.